Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. It's good to see you. Good morning. Welcome. As you can tell, we're going to be taking a little bit of break from 1 Peter. Uh, We do this from time to time, but I figured that this is a great time to prepare our hearts as we look into Easter. So I wanted to share with you, Jesus enters Jerusalem as we talk about Palm Sunday. So we have a Palm Sunday message. My goal this morning is that we would begin to prepare our hearts to receive what Christ is going to do as we we experience the Holy Week in, in, in this modern day. And so we're going to be asking, as we're praying together, in Maldi Thursday, we're going to ask for you to be praying and, and asking what God can do as we, as we try to come to understand what Easter, what the Resurrection Sunday is all about, as it comes anew and alive to us and respond to the Holy Spirit's work. So welcome. Thank you for being here this morning. Jesus enters Jerusalem, Matthew chapter 21. You can take your Bibles and turn there with me. Have you ever heard of the phrase, waiting for the other shoe to drop or to fall? Waiting for the other shoe to drop. Imagine a scenario where you have become the model employee. Now, I'm sure in here there's many of you are the model employee, so you don't have to imagine too hard. You are punctual. You're considerate to your fellow employees, desiring to make them better. You are productive, you follow all the policies and procedures to a T, and have the mutual admiration from your co-workers and customers alike. However, your employer is not happy with you. All of your good work serves to display his laziness, his lack of true leadership, and selfishness. Don't say amen yet. Though they try to find ways to find fault with your work, they come up empty. <clears throat> Eventually, they, turn, they try to turn your co-workers and customers against you by spreading lies and sprouting threats. They do this openly with your knowledge. It has become apparent that they want to get rid of you at all cost. They go so far as to ask your co-workers and customers to inform them of any missteps in order to fire you. Knowing this, you still show up for work determined to do what is right. What would you do? Would you continue to work for this type of company? Would you still seek to do right by them? Would you continue to show up for work knowing that they are looking for any excuse to fire you? Would it change how you interact with your coworkers and customers knowing that they have been engaged to work against you? Now, I know that's a strange scenario. But it's somewhat similar to what's going on in our passage today as we look at Matthew's gospel and Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem. In our passage today, we will read that Jesus is on the road walking towards Jerusalem focused on the most important task of all of human history, his betrayal, his mockery, his torture, his crucifixion. Let's read the passage together. Matthew chapter 21. Hopefully you have your Bibles to it or it's here on the screen if you need it as well. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, Matthew writes, and they came to Bethphage, 
to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foil of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees, and they spread them on the road. In verse 9, And the crowds that went before them and that followed them were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And he went and he entered Jerusalem. The whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would open up your word to us this morning. This is a very familiar passage of Scripture. So, Father, let us not gloss over what we find here, but, Lord, give us special attention this morning to prepare our hearts for what you're doing here. Uh, Let me speak words that are edifying. Show us the difference between God's Word and my mere opinion. And, Father, may we just respond to the Spirit's work, quench uh, all those things that may try to disrupt and, Lord, take us away from what's here. And we pray that Christ will be glorified. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All the Gospels include this entry into Jerusalem. There is a purpose for its inclusion and focus in the Gospel. Jesus' ministry of healing is finished. His miracles have ceased, except for a few more. His public teaching is almost completed, with a few more private instructions and encouragements for his disciples still to come. He's going to Jerusalem to die as the last sacrificial lamb. He is the final substitute that will finally cover all sins, both past, present, and future. As you may remember from previous messages, that a large group were traveling to Jerusalem for the Passover, uh, including Jesus and his disciples. It is estimated that approximately 2 million people would be in Jerusalem for this once-a-year event. So I want to share three observations as we look at Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. The first one is that Jesus arrives at Jerusalem to face his destiny. He arrives at Jerusalem to face his destiny. What we see here, Jesus knew what was facing him. As we looked at the scenario, he knew what was facing him as he rode in there. He's making his way to Jerusalem, and this comes after the rising of Lazarus from the dead. It is Passover or Palm Sunday when the Jews celebrate Israel's deliverance from Egypt. This is the week of his crucifixion. It's the end of his pilgrimage and ministry is Jerusalem, or it is where it will come to an end. After 30 years of mostly silence and followed by three years of public ministry, Jesus prepares to accomplish God the Father's final plan. Jesus becomes obedient to the death awaiting him. But yet he still arrives at Jerusalem, knowing his destiny. Now Jesus has foretold this in Matthew's gospel three times. In Matthew 16, he declares it after he asks, who am I? And Peter says, you are the Christ. He then says, I will die. After the transfiguration in Matthew 17, he gives them again a preview of what's happening. 
and once again on the way to Jerusalem in Matthew chapter 20. Now we must realize that Jerusalem is important here in Scripture, in the prophecy of God, in the Word of God. It's the center of religious life and messianic expectations. It is the city of the great king. It was the city of David. King David had conquered the Jebusites that lived there centuries before. He established his capital there and he dedicated to the city of God. In Psalms 48, David would sing, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised in the city of God, his holy mountain, beautiful in elevation. It is the joy of all the earth, Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. But interestingly, Jesus had spent the majority of his public ministry far from Jerusalem. He ministered mostly in Galilee and the surrounding areas. But now he is finally making his way to Jerusalem. Jesus prepares to accomplish God the Father's plan as he becomes obedient to the death that awaits him there in Jerusalem. However, Jerusalem, the city of David, the chosen capital of the nation that was chosen by God, intended to be a light to the Gentiles, the site of the temple, a visible focus of the worship of Israel's God, the one true God, is actually a place of rejection for Jesus Yet Jesus arrives at Jerusalem to face his destiny. It had ignored and killed the prophets of God for generations, and Jesus will be no exception. Jerusalem has been betrayed as the place that Jesus will be betrayed and mocked, beaten, and die. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus told the disciples, See, we are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be, will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. But yet Jesus still arrives at Jerusalem, knowing his destiny. In Luke's Gospel, we read that after raising Lazarus from the dead, a plan had been put in motion by the Pharisees. They said from that day on, they made plans to put Jesus to death. Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Knowing this, Jesus still enters Jerusalem. Jerusalem, or Jesus, excuse me, enters in Jerusalem is prophecy fulfilled. Take your Bibles, please, and turn to Daniel chapter 9, if you would, please. In Daniel chapter 9, a little bit longer portion of Scripture, but not too bad, in Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. What we're going to see that this is 483 years after the Persian king gave the command to rebuild the city of Jerusalem while they were being held captive in Babylon and the rest of the Babylonian, and then the Persian kingdom. In Daniel chapter 9, this was given to Daniel centuries before. It says, 70, year, 70, or 70 weeks are decreed about your people. Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. 70 weeks are decreed about your people in your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of the anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. 
Then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and a moat, but in a troubled time. And then after 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end shall come with a flood into the end. And there shall be war, desolations are recreed. That 483 years, that 62 times 7 is 434 weeks with another 49. We see that's 483 years Jesus to the day is crucified. So Jesus enters Jerusalem ready to face his destiny, knowing that that's the place that his earthly ministry ends. Death awaits him. The second observation I'd like to point out is Jesus presents himself and accepts the crowd's exaltation as king. He hadn't done this before. Many times when they would try to make him king, he would get out of the way. He would discourage it among his disciples and those who followed him. For centuries, the Jews have been looking, and we need to understand this, that for centuries, the Jews have been looking for the promised Messiah, the king, the one who would deliver them from their enemies and restore Israel to its former glory. This Messiah, the Christ, the King, had been prophesied throughout Scripture. It was prophesied in Genesis as Jacob blessed Judah. In Genesis 49, as Jacob was ready to die, he says to his son Judah, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the people, Binding his foil to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vestures in the bloods of graves. Jesus was from the tribe of Judah. It was prophesied to King David that he would, that the Messiah, the, the promised one, would come from his kingly line. It would be one of his uh, children. In 2 Samuel, Jesus, God says, I will raise up for you, you're an offspring after you, you shall come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Jesus was from the lineage of David, both through Mary and Joseph. It was prophesied by the angel Gabriel to Mary, at the mother, the mother of, Ju of Jesus. In Luke chapter 1, it says, He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, the angel said, there will be no end. Jesus was born nine months later. So Jesus presents himself as that Messiah, that king, the one that they have been longing for, the one that they were looking for. Jesus accepts the exaltation of the crowd. Never before had Jesus allowed such a public demonstration. As we had read previously, he would forbid anyone to declare his true identity. Demons and disciples alike. However, this time is different. He was not pushed or coerced into riding to Jerusalem and be celebrated as a king as in the times past. He willingly offered himself. The action of the crowd seems to be spontaneous, not something orchestrated by Jesus' disciples or other followers. It, there was no advanced team going ahead. There was no spin doctor, no political uh, manipulations going on. The crowd probably consisted of a large group of Galileans who had witnessed his great miracles, 
heard of his amazing teaching and experienced his ministry firsthand. Next week in our Easter message, we'll see that many of them had seen Lazarus raised from the dead by Jesus and were following him in because of that. They are already favorable to Jesus and accepting of his authority. These were not uh, residents of Jerusalem themselves, but people who knew Jesus and they were coming with Jesus to share with everyone, this here is the Christ. We have seen his great works. We have heard his great teaching. We've seen his ministry. Crowd cries out, Hosanna, which means save now. And they recite Psalms 118, where he writes, Save us, we pray, O Lord, O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Became an exclamation of praise that was used during the time of the Passover. This year was different because Jesus came in, presenting himself and accepting those adulations, that, that psalm as a prophecy found in himself. He accepts the crowd's adulation and demonstrates that he is the son of David, the king. He is the promised one, the Messiah. He also presents himself as a sovereign king who demands obedience. Kings owned all that was in their kingdom. And he could requisition anything in anybody for his own purpose. The prophet Samuel had warned Israel back in 1 Samuel that if Israel in those ancient days, if you chose a king, he said, he will take your male servants and your female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and he will put them to his work. In this case, Jesus demands the use of a young animal that had never been ridden. Or works. Matthew, in including this part of the drama, reveals not only his sovereignty, but also Jesus' omniscience. As Jesus, the Son of God, knows the place, the animal, the owner, the conversation, and the acceptance of his request, bring me the animal. In this case, Jesus demands this use. He demonstrates that he has the authority as king to demand for obedience and accept worship. So not only does Jesus arrive in Jerusalem to face his destiny, and not only does he present himself as king, accepts the adulation and the exaltation as king, but thirdly, as he comes, he comes in a different way than they expected, as he comes to bring peace and not war. He comes to bring peace, not war. He is coming as a meek king, not a warrior king. Now, that's not what Israel was looking for. This is one of the reasons why they struggled with accepting Jesus as the Messiah. In the end, it's one of the reasons why they rejected him. Donkeys were usually written by rulers in times of peace. In our scripture reading from earlier that Randy read, we read of the prophecies from God declaring, Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foil of a donkey. These original words were about God's judgment on Israel's enemies and bringing, pre, uh, bringing peace as you read the rest of that passage. The people were looking for a military salvation from the Roman Empire. They had suffered through Babylonian, Persian, Grecian, and now Roman captivity. However, Jesus did not come to make war with Rome, but peace with God. What they could not understand is that they had a greater enemy than Rome. 
They had a greater enemy than Persian and Greece. The greater enemy that they did not know was God himself. But the Bible tells us that we are enemies of God. That we're rebellious children towards God. Disobedience. They thought that their captivity was to the Roman army. The Roman Caesar, the Roman governor. But really their captivity, their enslavement was to sin and to their own hearts. But what we see in Romans it says, for while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by his death of his son. In Romans 5, 1, where he says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we've been made right by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, another reason why they would reject him is because they realized or they did not understand that he would come first to bring peace. Jesus himself said, come not to bring a sword, but I come to bring peace. There's a greater enemy afoot. And you and I have the same issue. We expect Jesus to come. And what we really look for is Jesus as the problem solver. Jesus nowadays has become that quick fix. It's like going to a store, to a therapist. Take this, shake real well, tear it off, and sprinkle a little bit of Jesus on whatever is going on in your life, and he will solve it all. Are you having financial problems? Jesus can solve it. Are you having marriage problems? Jesus, oh, you got a little bit of health problem? Hey, Jesus can heal it. And so Jesus becomes just another solution in a varied groups of solutions that we use instead of seeing that he is the cure for all things. The problem is, is we don't even know what our problem is. We need a savior. You don't need a life coach. You don't need another therapist. You don't need another great motivator or another book or self-help guru. You need a Savior. The Jews at this time, their Messiah was a Savior, not a military campaigner. That time is coming. But Jesus came meek to bring peace, the peace that you and I need. In responding to Jesus in this way, the people were signaling that they were ready for God. As Jesus is coming in and he presents himself as king, he understands he's going to Jerusalem. He knows he's going to die, but he faces it. He arrives there and doesn't come in under the, under, you know, many times as I read the, uh, the book of John, uh, it seems like Jesus always enters through the back door of Jerusalem. He always goes to the feast kind of incognito. They're always looking him for him, but, but can't find him. But this time, when Jesus enters Jerusalem, he comes in to such a fact that no one could be mistaken what he's doing. So he arrives and he accepts their worship. And that's just beyond anything. He's not an angel. He's not just a king. He's accepting worship as the Messiah, as king. But he also comes to bring peace in that war. The people, as they respond to him, they're saying, hey, we're ready for a Messiah. We're ready for the Christ to rule in righteousness. Don't you yearn for that? Don't you yearn for righteousness? Here's a sad fact that you and I must understand. That today, Palm Sunday, people throughout the world are going to church. 
And sadly, as I opened up the email this morning, I read that 43 people died with over 100 injured in a church bombing in Egypt this morning by ISIS as they gathered for their Palm Sunday worship. Those numbers will probably go up and down over the day. 43 dead and 100 injured in a church bombing in Egypt. They're looking for someone to rule in righteousness. They're looking for someone to bring peace. Who can bring peace? And I think this is one of the issues as we look at the Antichrist. He's going to mimic these things. He's going to bring a, a false peace, peace and a false righteousness. But here we have one who says, I will bring these things. I am the one who can do that. They're looking for uh, someone to administer salvation from their enemies. They're looking for one to fulfill all the promises of God and to restore Israel in God's glory. The crowd believed that Jesus was this Messiah. He was this king. He was the promised one that they had looked and longed for for centuries to make this happen. However, this was just an earthly coronation. Man's attempt to usher in their dreams and aspiration will always fail. In just a few days, Jesus, who comes triumphantly through Israel, will be betrayed, he will be deserted, he will be tortured, rejected, and crucified, all according to God's plan. Peter, in his sermon found in Acts chapter 4, says this, preach this, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Mark this, Jesus was born to die. He knew what his purpose was for. God's plan could not be thwarted. But let me share this with you. Is that story was not finished then. Though the earthly coronation was temporary and premature, we see that there was a heavenly coronation as well taking place. The Apostle Paul tells the church at Philippi that Jesus, who being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on the cross. And that God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth and in every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There will be a day which everyone, not just those who are affected by his ministry or by his healings, will say that Jesus Christ is Lord. The hardened sinner will fall on his face and say that Jesus is Lord. Scripture goes on to tell us that because he rules from heaven, that you and I as his children can find joy in our suffering by looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Yes, as he awaited knowing going to Jerusalem that his destiny was going to be brutal, he did it with joy, knowing that what it would bring us, that it would bring us at peace with God. 
Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Revelation chapter 19. Where Jesus came that first time as a meek king riding on a donkey. And for you and I, we accept the reconciliation, the peace with God. I pray that you have. If not, I would call you to do so today, for day is today is the day of salvation. The greatest enemy you face is God. As one day he will judge you in his wrath if you, re- if you reject him, if you turn from him. But we still yearn for righteousness and justice. We wonder when will these things be fixed? Many times, like the Jews, we ourselves are waiting for the return of the king, for him to come running, riding triumphantly. In Revelation 19, Scripture encourages that we should be looking for the future coronation. You and I look back. We will be celebrating today and this week and this weekend what Christ has done. And we should do that. We should remember that. That prepares our hearts. It, it gathers us and gives us courage, encouragement to, to look forward. Paul says, encourage one another with these words that Christ will return. But when he comes back in Revelation 19, it describes, he will not be coming as a king of peace, but one of justice and righteousness that will bring eternal peace. Look at this passage of scripture in the Bible with me. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one setting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and he makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. In verse 13, it describes him as one who is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and by the name which he is called is the word of God. The armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the wine presses of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. As we rejoice what Palm Sunday does, we recognize that Jesus came to Jerusalem to face his destiny, to be betrayed and mocked, tortured, and to die. He receives that, uh, that, that, that adulation and he presents himself as king and says, yes, I am that Messiah. He comes to bring peace, reconciliation with God. Now, as I look at this passage, I saw three responses. Three responses to Jesus coming as king. The first response was that of the disciples and the owner of the cult. Obedience. Go do this. Tell him I want this. And he will give you. There's obedience. And I would think for you and I, as we look forward to that return of the king, that today that we are obedient to his commands. He has not left us without a purpose. He has given us a great commission and a great commandment. That's why we meet together, is so that we can do these things together, knowing that we're stronger together. So that we may uh, uh, share with others that God is reconciling the world. He has called us to be 
those ambassadors of reconciliation. So the response of the disciples, the owner, is obedience. The second response is of the crowd. It's of reverence and worship. Of laying down things and saying, save us, recognizing. And I pray that each and every day of your life, as you consider who Christ is, as you consider what he's done for us, that your response is one of reverence and worship. Not just on Sunday mornings, not just once in a while, but your life is one in which you're lifting up and you're praising, save us, strengthen us, bring us peace. The third response is that of the crowd. Matthew tells us that the crowd was stirred up. And their question was simply, who is this? You can imagine what is going on. They may or may not have heard of Jesus. He was from Galilee, a backwards country. He was in Jerusalem just periods during those three years of public ministry. Many say, what is going on? Why? What's an uproar going on? You can imagine people who had been traveling from all over the world to come to Jerusalem saying, who is this Jesus? What is going on? And what a great opportunity to tell others. And that's the response that we're trying to stir with not only in our own congregation, but with others. In our relationship to Jesus, as we talk about him, as we share what he's done for us, as we tell him, listen, the king is coming, the king is coming. And their question is, well, who is this? Tell me about him. What great things has he done? Does your life, does your testimony, as we looked at 1 Peter the last two weeks, does it stir up the crowd, the people, your friends, your neighbors to say, tell me more about him. Who is this? Let me tell you, this is a great time to share who Jesus is. As people's eyes and their minds are, are just stonewalled into the TVs and into their tablets saying, what is going on with Syria? What is going on with all this world? What's going on with this world? We need to share with them. Hey, there is someone who's come to bring peace. There is someone who is going to come to bring righteousness and justice. They will face the Almighty God. And give it accounts. What's your response to Jesus? Our response is to surrender to Christ and allow Christ to reign in our hearts. Let nothing else on that throne. Our response to the King of Kings is also to obey Him and obey His word. And let me give you just one extra fourth. I should have put this in. It's not necessarily in the passage, but it's tied to it. The fourth response was rejection. The Pharisees rejected it. Them and their followers said, there's no way. He is not the Messiah. Many in the crowd themselves were turned. Not exactly the same, but many. Here's my encouragement to you. Embrace his kingdom and the peace that Jesus offers. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 says, Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Would you accept Jesus today? Don't delay. Would you turn towards him? Would you see that he died for you? Would you see that there's no reason for you to try to work your way to heaven or to try to find peace outside of what Christ has done?
For there's no hope except that which is found in Christ. He did not come to judge on his first advent, but to save. The Apostle John tells us, I did not come, Jesus says, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Christ as King has come to rule and to reign in our hearts. Here this morning, we have called together, we are called subjects submitting to his lordship this morning. This is the message of reconciliation that God has given us as Christ's ambassadors. You and I have a great opportunity this upcoming week with Easter to share the gospel. It starts with the first step of inviting a friend to church. You and I need to share and prepare our hearts for this week to share with others what Jesus has done. Tom Rayner of Lifeway writes that a survey shows that 96% of the unchurched are at least somewhat likely to attend church if they are personally invited by a friend or a family member. This is the time. So I'm asking you to prepare your hearts. Pray for God to give you courage. Consider what Christ has done. Find it worth sharing with others. No matter the uncomfortableness. No matter the ridicule you may receive. But would you be stirred up to do with with Christ? I want to give you just seven things from Lauren O'Neill who shared seven ways. I usually don't give you these types of things. But just to encourage as we prepare our hearts so that we may share others what Jesus has done for them. Do this this week. Pray about it. Pray for them by name before inviting them. Write down their name on a piece of paper. Envision them. Say, Lord, give me an opportunity to, to ask X, Y, Z to church this weekend. Give me the opportunity to share with them about Jesus. Pair the invitation with food or hospitality. Invite them out. Say, hey, come to Easter and then let's go out to eat afterwards. Or, hey, we don't have Sunday school, let's have breakfast. But be on time, please. Let's go to breakfast real quick. You know, do it with an invitation. Hospitality. Pick them up at their house in the morning and say, hey, I'll drive together. Let's drive together. We can talk about it before and afterwards. Be specific. Don't ask generalities. Hey, I hope you like to come. But no, ask them to come. Say, we're coming at 1040. Do you need a ride? Can I take you out? Can we meet? Can we do this? Have compassion towards their insecurities about church. Like you, many people struggle sometimes going to church. Maybe they've been burnt by church. They've been hurt by a church. So understand what insecurities they may be about maybe how they have to dress or where they're going to sit. By the way, the key to getting the best seat, the back rows, which is everybody's wanting, is to get here earlier. And then have compassion towards the insecurity, or I said to have compassion towards insecurity. Use your social media. Use the different ways that God has given, the common grace ways, but use it wisely. And if all else fails, just ask them, hey, would you like to go this weekend? I'll pick you up. I'll take you. There's something that you need to hear. There's something that we want to share with you. Are you looking for peace? Are you looking for justice? Are you looking for righteousness? We know where it's at. This does not mean that you just take people so the pastor can tell them how they can say that's your responsibility. But we do have an opportunity this weekend to share with people a great way together corporately who Christ is. So I would ask you as a church, let's do this together. It's unique. It's different. We have a great opportunity So I'm going to ask you, would you begin preparing your hearts today? The first question is, what have you done with Jesus? How have you responded to him? If you haven't accepted Christ, I pray, would you do so this morning? Would you recognize that anything that you do, you cannot work your way to heaven? Would you recognize that those good works are are hopeless? And that it's only what Jesus has done.
I'm going to ask you if you just bow your head and close your eyes for a moment. It's time to pause, to consider, to pray, and to respond. What is the Holy Spirit asking you this morning? How have you responded to Christ? Are you ready to accept Him? Are you ready to live for Him? Are you ready to die for Him? What may be He calling you to do this week? If anything this week, let's give gratitude for the one who came and willingly gave up his life. We pray this. Father, you're so good to us. We're so undeserving of all that you've done. But we thank you, Father, that you sent Jesus. We thank you that he was obedient to you, that he entered into Jerusalem knowing what his end would be. But yet in love, he did that for you and I. Father, I pray that you begin to prepare our hearts this week. Bring us closer to you. Help us as we read through the, the Holy Week and what Christ has done for us. Lord, that you would strengthen our hearts, give us greater courage, and give us a greater sensitivity to who you are. And Father, I would just ask that you would be with that church in Egypt. I couldn't imagine coming to worship you and then to find the worst day in our lives. Father, I pray that you protect all the churches throughout the world, especially for these upcoming weeks. Lord, I pray that we would pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ and that your word may advance and that we know that the gates of hell cannot stop your church. Thank you for calling us and bringing us forward to do so. In your name we pray. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith@orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.